Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Idly hey! Welcome to another episode of The Brett Allen Show. Prepare to be astonished! A pop culture podcast. Join Brett Weekly as he interviews your favorite celebrities from film, <gasps> oh, television, I'm back in business, baby. comedy, and much more. Inconceivable! Plus, you never know who will stop by. Dude, we are so going to party. Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. Welcome in, everybody, to another special edition of the Brett Allen Show, a pop culture podcast where we talk about your favorite shows, film, television, music, comedy, more, wherever pop culture is, you will find us hanging out today. We are talking about, I swear, one of the best uh, shows um, on television right now. And I, I can relate to this because I honestly grew up in a situation very similar. I'm sure you hear this all the time. We're talking to Tim Baltz. Righteous Gemstones, thanks for hanging out, my friend. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. So you grew up in one of these environments? Oh, very much so. I mean, it's so relatable. And it's interesting because I think I heard an interview uh, that Danny McBride did, who is one of the creators of this show, Jody Hill, that this is kind of based on like some personal experiences as well that he had. Uh, these types of churches and things. Did I, did I understand that correctly? Because it's very relatable. I think so. I mean, they grew up, you know, in the mid-Atlantic, I think North Carolina and Virginia. Um, so I won't speak for them, but I know, I think I've, I've read Danny said that his aunt is a nun, I believe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's something to that effect. I, I grew up in a town that had a lot of Catholic churches Okay. And some other denominations it wasn't really big enough for a mega church. But I think when I was in high school, like uh, these towns out, you know, a few towns away, these churches, you know, with that kind of like, um, I don't know, like crowd size started to pop up. Yes. And I would go to their youth groups with like my cousin or a friend or something like that. And uh, the sheer size of it and the shift to this kind of like rock and roll kind of popular, I don't know, like rock concert kind of feel started to become more prevalent. And I grew up in the Midwest, so that was just my region. I I know that was already kind of native to other regions, but for me, that was the first time that I kind of met that. And, uh, and, you know, and it was, it was so different from the Catholic churches that I'd gone to. Yeah, well, I was a, I wouldn't say mega church, but a large church youth pastor for a very long time. So oh, wow. like a, a lot of this is very familiar in a lot of different ways. I mean, of course, it's HBO, it's television, it's exaggerated quite a bit. But I find myself at certain moments um, relating to this on a very personal level. I think that's probably why I have such an infatuation with the show, because it's just so... Vaguely familiar, but you uh, are a part of this fantastic cast. Um, we're in the second season and we've got a few episodes out. I know, I don't know if it was the pandemic or whatever, but things kind of took a long time to get a second season out. But once we did, can you let people in on your sort of involvement with this and your character and uh, how he kind of fits into this this season? He's kind of coming into his own uh, as a as a person the baptism and the whole thing was just over the top Tim it's just 
unbelievably hilarious. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's definitely he has a unique path to um, acceptance from his in-laws and and the, the the greater Gemstone family. BJ is marrying into the family through Judy Gemstone, who's yeah. the middle child in the family. And I think, you know, she is always kind of uh, yearning for acceptance herself among the siblings, um, especially especially with Jesse, who's played by, you know, Danny McBride and Judy's played by um, the brilliant Edie Patterson. And B- she and BJ have this very kind of unique, difficult to describe love feels like a very unconditional love where, yes. where they understand each other <laughs> on a frequency that, that other people from the outside don't quite understand. But I think that their journeys are somewhat parallel where she's trying to get acceptance from her father and, you know, her brothers and secure a bigger place in the church. And BJ's trying to gain acceptance from the family and secure a place within, you know, uh, literally just like the church lunch table. Uh, and, and when we first did the pilot, Danny, we were sitting with the, the executive producers and Danny said, you know, you're kind of the, the eyes of the audience in the pilot. You're looking at the family the way that the audience is going to be looking at the family, but you're inside the show. Yeah. So their behavior, whether it's crass or vulgar or, you know, antagonistic toward one another, you're reacting the way that a regular audience member would react. And that definitely helped set me on a path of understanding what the role was in season one and then fighting for acceptance, kind of being pushed down by the, all the gemstone siblings, not being respected by, you know, baby Billy and Eli. Um, (laughs) And then in season two, you know, thinking that, Oh, everything's going to be fine once I'm baptized. And obviously it's not the baptism is a total disaster. Uh, And I don't want to spoil too much, but BJ does make some inroads yes. with the family. Um, but it, you know, I mean, it comes at a, it comes at a physical and emotional price. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting because as funny as you, as this is to watch and to sort of go, my God, poor guy, you know, really like there's a lot deeper context there on a very visceral level. Like he really, is trying to fit into this family, which he clearly um, has very little or nothing in common with outside of his relationship, you know, with Edie's character. You know what I mean? Like it's really, you find yourself rooting for you a lot because I think most people have probably seen up to the baptism, which really kind of parallels as a, a wedding reception, which is just this off the wall thing that you guys are doing. Um, but again, having grown up and been a part of this world to a degree, like a lot of it is very like, it's not too far off from what could, uh, possibly exist and be because I've been a part of very similar types of events, but, um, you and just the entire cast, my friend do such a beautiful job. I mean, this is such a well done show and it was a hard wait between season one and two, um, are oh, you yeah. are you all still filming this or is it is it all in the can at this point and now we're waiting to see what's next? Yeah, season two is in the can. We actually tried to start it um, before the pandemic began. We got two right. days into filming before it shut down. So that was diff. It was difficult. I mean, the pandemic's been tough for everybody, um, but we were so excited to get started and then, you know, got sent home uh, and 
but we got through season two and, and uh, we'll go back for season three, which got announced a few weeks ago. Yes. Um, We'll go back for that in a few months. Uh, And I mean, in general, the cast is so talented. I think Danny, everyone at rough house, all the writers um, have put out hit after hit after hit in TV and in film. And somehow they're still underrated, but they're, they're incredible filmmakers. I've worked with a lot of people and it is just really cool to watch how they straddle certain genres, you know? Yeah. Cause there's like, it's a family, it's a family drama, but it's a family comedy. And yes. it's also the scope of the world is so huge. And it's saying, you know, it's satirizing all these different kind of subcultures and blending them together so perfectly. I'm, I've always, just shown up being like, I'm going to play my character as earnestly as possible, which, you know, I think uh, brings some of the most laughs and helps create that kind of um, world of, of truth and honesty and, and family dynamic. And then I just get to learn from all these people. I mean, you're standing in a scene with John Goodman and Walton Goggins, you know, Edie comes from improv the same way that I do, but is a little older and has different, uh, you know, experience and, um, and is brilliant. Cassidy Freeman's been working, you know, for 15 years. Divine comes from workaholics and just all these people coming together. Greg Allen. Um, I mean, Greg Allen, like, you know, he did theater in Chicago before I was born and then did Baywatch and is a director. I mean, there's so many, there's so many brilliant people on the show that we're lucky that we get to come together and let Danny and Roughhouse and David Gordon Green and Jody Hill kind of take care of the tone. Uh, and what comes out of that tone is something I think very unique yeah, and very difficult to pull off. Yeah. I mean, they've done Eastbound and Down. They did Vice Principals, uh, this, and just a bunch of other projects as well. And it's interesting because when you watch interviews with Danny and Jody, they they really do set the example for if you want to create something, create it and do it because you never know like what will come of it. And just starting out, you know, and hearing their stories, all these stories, even the ones that you're telling, it's interesting. The term underrated is surprising to me, but man, these shows are just so good and just very well thought out from tip to tail. Um, And, you know, although it is funny, there's a lot of serious things, I mean, happening in the story as well. And really every week to week, we just kind of sit ourselves down and go, God, what's going to happen next? You know, whether it's with your character or, you know, these outrageous um, situations. I want to ask because a lot of the scenes, you both, you and Edie come from improv, a lot of these scenes that you have um, are just like the dialogue is hilarious. Are you improving any of that or is that all just written pages uh, and you're just reading it? Cause it's, it's so good. Like you think to yourself, who talks to somebody like this? <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah. it's yeah. just crazy. <laughs> the, I mean, the scripts are, the scripts are brilliant. Um, I come from improv, you know, I did, I did Second City. I did everything yeah. that you could do in Chicago before I moved. I didn't move to LA until I was like 33, basically. Uh, so, you know, if people are like, it created a show that was fully improvised, have worked on other shows that are fully improvised based off outlines. Yeah. And when we showed up, I was surprised at how 
um, game. I mean, I knew that, that, you know, Danny and, and all those guys are comfortable with improv and use it a lot. And you can definitely like feel how alive the dialogue is in those other shows. But I was surprised at how much they were like, yeah, you know, you could say whatever you want um, because I was reading the scripts and what I was seeing in the scripts was brilliant dialogue yeah. that had been fine tuned to both sound real and like a, something crazy that you've never heard before. <laughs> so I, I was always a, a proponent of like, well, let's get the script because the script is making me laugh really hard and we got to get at least the script. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're blessed that they give us enough time to kind of, if we are inspired, go off the page or kind of say it in our own words. They really trust that they've cast the show well and that our instinct helps they all the work that they've done and all their instinct. Um, and they're great too. And, and, you know, you see in the edit, I mean, well, we see in the edit, if you remember back to like on the day when you were filming, you're like, Oh, cool. That little improvised part uh, got in. And then it's like, Oh, that one thing we did was really funny, but it's not in, but look at the pacing of the show. The pacing of the show is like sublime and it moves really quickly and it keeps you emotionally invested in the tragedy and the comedy and it helps this joke hit really hard. So yeah, <laughs> I don't, I've been, I've been in post-production with my own show and I've watched those decisions are really difficult. Um, and it, I don't know, it's there, there is, they do trust us to improvise. I mean, long, long story short, they let us improvise and it's really always funny to see the episodes and see like, Oh, cool. That made it in. Like, in episode one, when we're talking about um, BJ and Judy getting married at, at Disneyland or, or Disney yes. World, uh, like Prince Eric was one of the things that got thrown out. And then we all were all like riffing on it and improvising it. Um, and then in the in the latest, there are also like tiny little moments too. like in the last episode in episode seven. Um, it, I'll say this. You can cut it if you don't want it. But when baby Billy drives away and his. Uh, u-haul truck tips over yeah and everything falls out i i, I was wa- we were watching it happen and i just went the elixirs and and jody came up and he was like that was really funny keep saying that at the end and i'm like sure yeah that's so <laughs> fascinating i mean all of your characters are just so well finessed judy you know Edie, going from like very sweet and kind to just like straight up gangster sometimes with some of the things <laughs> that she says and just like, oh my God, like I've dated some women like that. You know, it's so funny. Where are you I wanna, from? <laughs> I'm from the Midwest, Wichita, Kansas, but I mean, I've lived in here in the Bay Area for several years and nice. have gone out and things, but I, I digress with that. Um, you've been a part of some really great projects. I was just going through your, your repertoire before we talked and uh, Drunk History, of course, uh, a bajillionaire listing, bajillion... Dollar, dollar listing properties, yeah, the billion dollar properties, a lot of things. But I'm very curious, and our listeners and viewers always find this fascinating. What what led you to be a storyteller? I you started out in Chicago, Second City, did all of that. What 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 kind of interested you, Tim, in going? Okay, this is something that I want to take on as a career. Maybe. I mean, it started kind of slowly. My my dad had a master's in theatrical history. Um, I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, and okay. he had been a stage actor in the 60s and 70s. And then 
when my sister and I came along, um, he became a picture framer, but obviously he had a, you know, he had a master's. He was, he was a brilliant person to just watch TV film with, you know, go to the theater with. Uh, so we kind of had that, but none of us really thought, you know, Oh, I want to do that. Then in high school, I started to get involved in the plays at, at school and I played sports year round and I had to quit baseball for one of them. And I was like, damn, that was kind of a big thing. I had to quit baseball for a play. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to try my best at it. And then I, I did, and I had a little success. And then through high school and college, I'd done like 15 plays. And I'd also discovered improv in Chicago for the first time. And that was just the light bulb went off. It made sense to me in a way that other things didn't make sense, even things that I was good at. So yeah. th that was a big thing is that like the passion for it, the energy to try to get as good as possible at it was there. And even things that I was naturally good at, um, the, the energy and the passion wasn't sure. quite there. So that, that stood out. And then I, I went to college at Loyola in Chicago and um, as a way to dip those and prop. And then, you know, the more I did it, the more I would kind of look around and be like, man, I think I'm good at this. I think I have to keep doing it. And at every level that just kept being true. I was, I was as Midwest as you could get. Like you don't leave a job unless you have another job lined up. You know, uh, you have to pay your bills. I, I moved to Chicago with about $200 in my pocket. Um, wow. After graduation. So I was in panic mode, but <laughs> the passion and the energy and the, the kind of fact that doing improv was very cheap <laughs> and free, at least at the time. Um, and there were so many good people in Chicago. It was crazy how many good people there were. Um, just a golden age and not very career oriented. So it, it like, you know, you were doing it because you wanted to be good at it. And, and then the, the main thing that decided was, uh, you know, with um, uh, this guy, Ted Tramper approached me to do this improvised uh, web series that was called Shrink. And then we turned it into a pilot and took it to New York television festival, won a few awards, got a production company attached, developed it, pitched it, sold it. All this takes like six years, but yeah. that seeing that up on a big screen um, and winning awards, that's the thing that really made me think like, Oh wait, the way that I'm funny on stage can work on screen. I can do this. Um, that was, that was kind of the big moment where I thought, okay, now I need to start getting technically better in front of the camera if I want to have a career. And I moved to LA, got very lucky, got cast in Drunk History. And that, even though, you know, you're just lip syncing, um, it really taught me production. It taught me you're, you're on a set. Here's how you, the camera's here. So you need to be looking this way, or now you need to move an inch this way. And, uh, it kind of held my hand through those, those kind of early moments that and doing commercial work. Wow. So fascinating. I spent a little time in Elmhurst in Bensonville, hey. Illinois. So, uh, I missed the food Portillo's, uh, oh, Lunati's, oh, yeah. uh, cafe grand Lux, all of that. One question about drunk history. You mentioned your lip syncing because that is just another insane show too. Are you hearing audio playing in your ear or do you have cue cards while you're lip syncing all that? Because I mean, literally the people telling the story are hammered 
And yeah. then you're, you're, it's, it's, I, I wanted to ask about that because how does that work real quick? Is that, that has to be challenging because you're doing this and then you're, it's kind of a weird show, but it's interesting. It's funny and hilarious. Weird in the sense of how they're telling one side of the story and then you're like acting it out. It's just different. Yeah. It was, it was uh, not super easy to pick up right away. And then there'd be other, I joined in season two. I did season two and three. Yeah. So there were people from season one that were pros at it. Like Craig Kakowski was just amazing. <laughs> and I remember they would send you the links the night before and you'd have your dialogue. And sometimes it'd be one line. Sometimes it'd be, you know, six or eight lines. But like you said, the people are hammered. So they're like, uh, um, uh, you know, their cadence is all choppy. So it's, it's even harder. So I would sit and at night, it'd be like two hours. I wake up early in the morning before driving to like, you know, Santa Clarita and I'd, I'd drill it in my head even more. And then you get there and there was a big sound truck and the sound guy would play it like over the loudspeaker. So you'd Got be it. hearing it and you'd get to practice a little bit, but then probably halfway through the season, um, Maria Blasucci, who was in the cast, she had her, you know, her headphones in and she was talking and I, I, I was like, hey, Maria. And she, and I was like, oh, sorry, you're on the phone. She's like, no, I'm not on the phone. I was like, oh, well, you look like you were talking. She's like, no, I'm doing my lines. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? She's like, well, I recorded on my phone so that I can listen to it over and over and over again. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so stupid. <laughs> she just added in her voice memo notes on her iPhone. So that once I started doing that, it got a lot easier because you just memorize the cadence the same way that you memorize visually. You're just memorizing it audio wise. And it makes it a little easier. It's still tough, but... Yeah, um, I can imagine. One last question, Tim, and I, I'm very curious. Uh, I think our listeners and viewers, again, just love this because we don't get to hear this often in interviews, but what is the best advice that you've been given as a, as a storyteller, as an artist that sort of has sustained you uh, throughout the trajectory of your, of your long and uh, fantastic career? Oh, thank you. Well, it's... I think that every kind of scene has an objective within the larger context of a story, which has an objective. And some people like to break things down into their components um, because it helps them kind of analyze what's happening. Other people, it just kind of reduces the anxiety to kind of focus on one thing at a time. And as a storyteller, when you're looking at that objective from the you know, smaller instance of a scene to how the scene fits into the larger context to the larger context of an episode or a story, whatever the case is. Focusing on what that objective is and trying to accomplish it one little piece at a time really helped me because especially when you're coming from improv, you kind of like, you know, the wheels are off, you're going as fast as you can. Um, when you get into kind of scripted, you know, narrative drama or comedy can't really do that. You have to be focused. You have to be precise and understanding what the objective of that scene is, what your emotional objective is, um, helps you just focus. So you're just focusing on this one little piece. And, and that's also helped me as a writer help as an improviser, always tried to stay in the moment and, and it helps me there too. Um, but when you're, when I'm reading something, when I'm preparing for something, I like to look at things at that size and with that objective um, when I have the time. That's always really helped. I mean, a bit more of a technical note, you know, the other note is 
be nice to everyone, be helpful to everyone. You don't only be nice to the people that yes. you think can help you. Because <laughs> uh, I've come across a lot of people that were, you know, pretty, pretty crappy to me when they thought that they didn't need me. And now that they need me, they're like, what's up, dude? Oh, you're and, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, well, that's fine. I understand how the world works. And it's, I'm flattered that you think that now, but, um, there are people that were nice to me when I was a nobody to them and they're nice to me now. And I'm going to go with them, not you, because I trust them. And, and that behavior made me trust you less. Dig the well before you're thirsty. That is the best advice. <laughs> I, that's, you said it way better than I could. Tim, fantastic job. Everybody, please make sure to watch the Righteous Gemstone Sundays on HBO Max. Uh, stream it, binge it. It's amazing. Uh, Drunk History, I think, is out there streaming somewhere. Uh, pro- I think Hulu, it's available. Um, all the other amazing projects. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. My pleasure, Brett. Thanks for having me. That brings today's show to a close. Goodly do. Thanks for stopping by. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to share it with a friend and subscribe. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Autobots, roll out. Go home.